Well, hey, folks, Lisa with The Boundless Show here, giving you a shout because now that it's spring, at least in the northern hemisphere, <laughs> we want to remind you that the ministry of Boundless and everything that we do, the articles, the show, the blogs, the social media, the community happens because you guys give. So if you love Boundless, would you help us in our spring giving campaign? You just go to boundless.org slash donate and give whatever you can afford to help the ministry of Boundless continue, especially as we we start planning the things that are coming up for this summer and into next fall. And so we have some great ideas uh, that we want to accomplish, but you're the one that's going to help us make them happen. And so boundless.org slash donate to be part of the Boundless team in giving to the ministry that you know and love so well. Thanks in advance for your support. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. Later on for our inbox, we have a girl struggling with feeling like she missed some great dating and friendship opportunities in college, and she wants to know how does she move forward where she is right now. So I'm going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment, a panel of pastors uh, are here to discuss how we should respond when a Christian leader fails, um, really morally or whatever, and we know from the news that that has been happening lately. So stay tuned for a really great two-part conversation on that. Well, here we are for our roundtable, and uh, we talk a lot here at Boundless about dating and specifically attraction in dating, because attraction seems like one of those like unchristian things that everyone feels like you need, but no one wants to talk about. And is it appropriate? And, you know, oh, do I really need attraction or should we just both have significant portions of the Bible memorized? And so um, we're going to actually parse that out here. And fortunately, we have got Brian, Savannah and Bill. Hey, y'all. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Lisa. Wonderful to have you. Okay. So um, you, all three of you are now married, uh, some more than others. Savannah's our newest right. newlywed. <laughs> How far in are you, Savannah? Uh, we're about a year and a half. Okay. Year and a half in. Um, they actually met here at work. That's very exciting. <laughs> I, I like to say that we met in our orientation and Casey is very much responsible for that. <laughs> oh, okay. One of our HR gals. Awesome. Okay. But so, so clearly you guys have <laughs> any attraction hurdles that were there or maybe Maybe you were the one. Maybe you, you're worried that like, oh, was I attractive enough? I don't know. But somehow they were overcome because you got married. But through all your dating experiences, marriage experiences, whatever, um, getting to marriage, clearly attraction had to be a factor. Um, and, and somehow, you know, you reconciled stuff in your own head. So the first thing I want to ask kind of is just generally for all y'all, um, Really, how, because we're talking specifically here, not like that first date kind of attraction, but what does it look like as you move through a relationship and maybe you feel more or less attracted during the course of that relationship? I mean, certainly marriage after years, you know, kind of then you're like the the gloves come off and reality <laughs> sets in and you're like, did I find this person attractive uh, at one point? I don't know. Anyway, so I want to ask you guys, First of all, generally, how important do you think it is uh, attraction for a dating relationship to last? Like, what does this look like as you're early in the relationship, midway? How did you guys even reconcile this in your own heads when you were dating? Candy necklace. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Brian is an outlier because he was straight up weird on his first date, eating a candy necklace off of his wife's neck. Uh, we... 
We feel I, we cannot get into that again. That's <laughs> too weird. So eighteen uh, years of marriage. We now. need we need to have your wife here to be talking about that. Was she, oh, was she too scared to say no? Though was that yeah. the problem? <laughs> I don't think she knew what to say. <laughs> yeah, she was just taken off, off guard, guard mm-hmm. for sure. So, but yeah, let's talk attraction. Yeah, there's many types of attraction. I mean, there's of course the physical attraction that we always all think about. Um, I mean, emotional attraction, and then of course the attraction just because you like doing the same thing. So you're kind of around each other in different groups and different spheres. I'll agree with Brian on that. I think there there is that first, you know, there is the physical attraction. You want to marry somebody you're attracted to. Um, but like you said, Brian, too, with the emotional, the spiritual, you, you want to enjoy being with this person no matter how long you're married. So yeah, there needs to be something there. Mm-hmm. I think kind of to your earlier point, Lisa, I it kind of wraps up everything that I view it as like, obviously you have to have an initial attraction to, to be interested in dating them, you know, romantically, but attraction is going to look so different from the first time you lay eyes on them to when you're, you know, well, in my case, you know, a year married and then five years, 10 years, like it's going to look completely different. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's certainly important for that initial, um, connection that you have with that person but that's not everything that your relationship is. And you can't just base everything on that attraction because that'll look totally different 30 years down the road. Yeah. Now, thinking back to when you guys were dating, would you only date someone like on a first date that you were physically attracted to? Because really, if you don't know the person that well or you weren't friends beforehand, you have to be going off of just some kind of impression of them or hearsay or whatever. But what would have been your initial like litmus test or whatever was that just like okay i'm into them i'm going to ask them out or i'm going to go out with them or was there kind of this like giving someone a chance vibe that you were willing to do for you personally i think personally speaking i was probably um a little snobbish in my (laughs) earlier days you were so Uh, shallow (laughs) i was i have to say yeah so uh, you know specifically like my college years i think you know about really dating more people than than um I had you know previously obviously and yeah it was definitely only based on that first and that you know reaction and initial meeting that you have with that person for sure that's just me personally (laughs) not that I recommend that but (laughs) (laughs) okay that's legit well and and yeah I think uh the first part yeah is just when you see someone I mean you kind of get a feel for okay you know, do I like the way they look? Do I not like the way they look? Do they do they dress nice? Are they put together? Or, you know, are they not? So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a big part of kind of that first initial, um, I don't know, kind of kicking the pants. Do I, do I want to uh, pursue this a little more or do I not? And, and go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, as a guy, yes. Um, <laughs> to be honest, you are looking, you know, you, you see someone, you're like, wow. And then you get to know them and you might be like, whoa, um, no. But, you know, there is that initial, hey, you caught my eye. Let, I want to talk to you or meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, clearly, like Savannah aside, um, I have <laughs> felt like <laughs> when I've talked to men and women about this, I feel like generally speaking, and again, we're speaking in generalities here, guys are kind of like 
either initially attracted to someone or they're not, and then they can maybe date someone, and then that attraction may wane if she's super weird or clingy or needy or, you know, has too many cats or whatever, whatever you find out after the fact. Women, I find, are more willing to go in with less attraction, and then a guy can kind of grow on them and maybe gain Mm -hmm. some points in that sense. Do you guys find that to be generally true? Because I feel like women are very irritated by that fact (laughs) that, like, uh, guys, we're out there giving you a chance because you're full-on wearing your Star Trek uh, regalia, and I still was willing to go out with you. you got to uh, start somewhere, Lisa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, I What's wrong with Star Trek? But what, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm just stereotyping. But um, but what do you guys feel about that? Like, have you, have all of you, any of you, dated someone where you felt like the attraction did grow, and maybe you were kind of surprised by that? Well, I think that's kind of what led to our our marriage, yeah. I mean, I was attracted to the the way Marty looked at first, and then the more I got to know her, the more I really loved her personality and and what what she was all about. One of the things I still love about her is just her way to the the way that she can talk to people. You know, she can um, we're out somewhere, she can start talking to someone she doesn't even know, and by the end of the night, I mean, she can be best friends with this person and just carry on a a good conversation and sometimes deep conversations. And I still uh, so appreciate that about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, when Julie and I went out the first time, it's like, this this is cool. Um, and over time, it just grew. And it's like, um, this is someone who's really become an important part of my life. And, and you find more things as you grow in that relationship, you're attracted to more. And it keeps growing as you invest in that too. You said aside from me, am I still allowed to, <laughs> you to weigh we'll in here? We'll let you weigh in, Savannah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I think that certainly can go both ways, kind of how you had alluded to in the beginning. Like there are certainly relationships where I had entered into very physically attracted to the person. And, you know, as the time goes on, you're like, hmm, yeah, maybe maybe I'm not so into your personality as much. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's certainly it can go both ways for sure. And I definitely know, um, you know, the statistic that you were talking about, I would say for sure more of my single female friends would be more willing to to at least, you know, go on one, two, three dates with someone that they weren't extremely attracted to physically whereas my male single male friends maybe less than Mm -hmm. willing to do that right right going back to what i mentioned earlier i think i want to touch on this too is that when marty and i would go out to different places with you know other friends during the time we were dating i didn't feel like i had to babysit her you know she wasn't clung to my shoulder Mm. or clung to my arm the whole time, you know, we could kind of work the room, if you will, talk to our friends, you know, come back, catch each other's eye across the room, still knew, you know, that we were in this relationship, but yet comfortable enough that we could kind of have other conversations. And it wasn't like we needed to spend every moment together either. So I think that's what really uh, attracted me to her too. Confidence. Yeah. 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 And I think you do, you can learn stuff about people over time. And there's a, you know, sometimes it it requires you getting your head in the right space of not, you know, I think one of the the curses of dating right now is too many options. So when the whole world is open to you and, oh, well, what about, you know, this person's great, but this person's great too. But what about this person three states over that I met on this dating app? You know, then all of a sudden you're like paralyzed because what do I do? Um, And I really appreciate it. This 
was years ago now, I wrote a blog post at Boundless that I titled Choosing Attraction. And it's the story of my friend Sam, who's really, I mean, if, if this isn't just miraculous, I don't know what is, like his mom actually set him up with this woman. And he was very <laughs> resistant to it. And they really didn't even like each other off the bat. But then they had this conversation to break up. And they found that in breaking up, they actually were the most honest with each other that they had been. And finally, they're like, actually, I kind of appreciate that about you, that you were very honest about that. And they gave it another go. And now they're married and have two adorable kids, one who's a violin prodigy. So anyway, all that to say, what do you guys think about, um, I want to throw out the idea of like opposites attract. Do you think that's true? Is that just kind of an outlier type situation? What What is it about that person that's different from you that makes them especially attractive? I'll step out and say that it's a generalization. I uh -huh. mean, you, you do want someone who brings something different to the relationship. But um, what I found is like you want someone you're friends with that that's really going to sustain the relationship long term. Mm -hmm. I enjoy being with you. So there are things in our marriage that um, we're very different at. I mean, my wife's more outgoing and I prefer to be the introvert. Um, there's there's things like that. Um, but I think if you're if you really follow that opposites attract too far, you're going to find your opposites. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I think that's that's too much of an overgeneralization. Right. I mean, you are going to have, you're going to want to have things that you are have in common and enjoy doing together. And yes, there are those things, like I mentioned earlier, that are opposites because I'm the same as Bill. I'm a little more introverted and, and Marty's more extroverted. So yes, we have those uh, those times when, you know, it's kind of that the, the push and pull sometimes. No, yeah. yes, no, yes. You know, we need to do this. No, we don't. You know, it's, but um, you kind of come to a, come to an agreement and you move on. So, and, and to go along with that, Lisa, I think probably what Brian and I have both found is that when, when our wives have that opposite, when there's an opposite strength, it helps balance us out. So that's where the opposites attract is good. Right. But, mm -hmm. but yeah. yeah, you want to have some meaningful relationship too. Okay. I think what's interesting in, in Austin and I's relationship specifically, like socially speaking, I'm way more out there than, than he is. You know, he's very introverted and, shy and quiet and I'll talk to anyone. I'll be, I'll be friends with anyone. Um, but speaking for all of the people out there who may struggle with anxiety or any sort of thing like I do, um, you know, my anxiety comes more from like, you know, risky things, um, you know, heights and those sorts of things. And he has zero fear whatsoever. I mean, he will do, he would go jump out of a plane right now. Like he has zero fear of that whatsoever. And so he has really brought me out of my shell in that sense. And I have done far more adventurous things with him than I ever would think of before him. Um, so, and that has been the best thing for me personally that I've gotten out of our relationship. And so I would just really recommend anyone who struggles in that area too. like, it is terrifying being with someone who is like that, but it is the best thing that will ever happen to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Marty and I enjoyed back in the day, rollerblading. We enjoyed, oh, 90s guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'd go for miles on trails around school um, playing racquetball. We love playing racquetball together. But one thing I can't stand, I'm not a video gamer. Hmm. I can't stand playing video games and sitting in front of the TV and just twiddling my thumbs. No. And she can. And I'm, I find that so odd that here's my wife, 
you know, mm-hmm. loves playing video games and was kind of a gamer in college. And I wasn't, but that's okay. Well, she probably had to work through that with you. <laughs> probably like, can I date this guy? He doesn't even game. What the heck? Needless to say, we don't have a video game system in our house okay. right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about, again, since you guys have done the relationship long haul now with, with spouses and stuff, let's talk about, and I want you guys to be honest and share maybe some examples, and it could be telling on yourself too, but instances where you or your spouse maybe had seasons of being... they they were not as attractive to you or you, you know, some of the, some of the cracks start showing either in yourself or in your spouse and stuff. And how do you work through that? You know, because the world will tell you, oh, well, when that fizzles, then you just bail and you find the next more exciting person and stuff. And we know that that's not, you know, that's not how Christians operate. That's not how God wants us to operate. So what does it look like for you to get through those, um, those seasons where you're just like, meh, you know, or maybe your spouse is like, meh, about you. What does that look like to cultivate attraction in a relationship? So I, I'll I'll go first here because um, we can laugh about this now because <laughs> we're a year out from this. Um, but when Austin and I had gotten married, we got married November of 2019. And then February, March of 2020, the world shut down and we were mm-hmm. locked in our house together for months <laughs> on end, 24-7. And you get to a point where you're like, okay, we still are, we might be in the newlywed phase, but like we are together 24 (laughs) seven and I don't always like you or always (laughs) want to be trapped in this house with you. Um, So yeah, there was definitely phases of like, I don't want to look at you right now. I don't want to hang out with you right now, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is very, I would say unusual for that newlywed, you know, Mm -hmm. phase. Um, But that's what, that's what quarantine did to us. But I think that it was just important to remember that, like, that is just a phase and you can go to your separate corners in the house and go to have your alone time. I think that that's super important in any relationships, having your alone time and being able to recharge yourself individually before coming back together. Um, And then just realizing that, like, you married them for a reason, like you're dating them for a reason and that whatever that hard phase is that you're going through will pass and you will love them again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um I'll I'll dish on myself here a bit because when when Julie and I met, I was um pretty intense on the business side and felt like, you know, you should wear a, a long sleeve shirt, tie. I had classy suspenders way back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> those Julie, those yeah. terms are mutually uh, exclusive. Uh, yes, Bill, exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. It, yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Julie is a jeans and t-shirt gal, and um, I clashed on that. I really struggled with that when we dated, but kind of worked past that. And then about three, four years into our marriage, it kind of came to a head again because of the environment I worked in. And I was honest about it, and it really made a mess of things. Uh, And it was kind of realizing, I need to let go. I'm pretty selfish on this one, and... That's not who she is, and I I married her knowing that. So Hmm. God had to work on me, and today I don't have suspenders or ties. (laughs) Um, Yeah. All right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, for us, I mean, I think when I probably come across as the most unattractive is in some areas of money. 
in our relationship. She's the spender and I'm the saver. And boy, can she spend and boy, can I try to save. <laughs> I can relate, Brian. <laughs> and, and oh my goodness, there have been some, um, some drag out uh, arguments, you know, in, in that regard. So, but again, you know, what we mentioned earlier, kind of having that, that opposite side also yeah. kind of pulls us out of kind of who we are to who we can become and really helping me with the idea of, no, it's so it's okay to spend $10 on this or $5 on this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and also for for her coming to see my side of things as well and being the provider of the family and wanting to make sure that, you know, all the bills are paid and taken care of in that in that way. And, and recently, this may sound weird, but maybe, maybe it's weird to me because I've never thought of it before, but we actually opened up another checking account. Now, don't take this that we have two separate checking <laughs> accounts. We have one <laughs> checking account, but we have one checking account now that's strictly for bills. Hmm. One of the things that we would always run into is I knew when the bills were due, so I'd make sure there's money in the account, but she wouldn't. She'd see that there's money in the account, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'm out <laughs> with the girls. We can uh, you know, go buy some, some new clothes for the kids or new shoes. And I'm like, wait a minute. That was just in the house. Now I can't. Uh, wait, wait. <laughs> you know, So it's kind of coming to that realization that, no, we need to make some adjustments here. So, And that's really kind of worked for us and kind of calmed us down, I think, a little bit. Because now I know that, oh, yeah, we've got the funds there to pay the bills. And she knows this money over here in this account, that's all to spend. Now, what Brian won't tell you is he still has a 1983 black and white TV with rabbit ears, <laughs> and, and Marty's been uh, twisting his arm. Well, clearly... <laughs> trying to get a, a good signal. Go this way. Move this way. As a non-gamer, he doesn't care, so that's totally fine. Okay. All right. So kind of final question as we wrap up here. Help, I mean, that, that person who's like, you know, because we hear from so many people who are like, well, I can't even get a date. Am I just unattractive in general? So that person that just feels like... Is attraction so important that it's just like I'm never going to get a date or, you know, because I think we can trend on one side or the other. Either we put too much importance or too much value on attraction and that can be unhealthy as well. So we could even speak to that. But then that whole idea of like, you know, encouragement for the person who feels overlooked by everyone else and is like, is this just hopeless? What would you say to them? Don't be a Tigger and don't be an Eeyore. <laughs> What's the character in between? I don't know. Who is that? Kanga? <laughs> I don't know. That's who you should be. I I think a big part of it is just being comfortable where you're at right now. Mm-hmm. When you're comfortable with who you are and where you're at, I think is kind of that best time when you're going to be open to meeting someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, you know, that to me, that says confidence. Mm-hmm. Like, people are attracted to confidence and just that's, you know, that has to come from you individually within yourself, being comfortable and confident within yourself first. And then I promise you, like, other people will see that and mm-hmm. they will be attracted to that. Mm-hmm. It will come. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, be who God made you to be. Just be honest. Um I think that that goes the longest in that you'll, you know, as God opens doors, you'll find that person that matches with you honestly. Um, if you try to be someone you're not, it shows through pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But uh, oh, yeah. as as you have those opportunities, uh, you know, like Savannah said, you got to step out and take a risk right. every now and then. But, but be willing to do that and just be who God wants you to be, who he made you to be, though. 
Yeah, I think that's good. And and it's so this is when I'm reminded of how this is where like rom-coms and Hallmark <laughs> movies and everything have so messed us up. <laughs> yeah, because they're like supermodel caliber people who right. just tragically can't find anyone to love them. And so then it's like if they can't find someone, I'm not going to be able to find someone. But of course, then they start baking cupcakes and doing whatever. And then they're attractive. So, and then they move back to their hometown. Right, and that's right. Where they right. <laughs> it's that same person they should have dated 15 years ago. Uh-huh. I know. Exactly. Yeah. So, and love doesn't work that way. I mean, it's it's yeah. nice when it does, but but in honesty, love is a day to day can be mm-hmm. kind of boring sometimes. So you yeah you need someone who can walk with you and be with you as who you are. Mm-hmm. Well, and I so appreciate what you said early on, Bill, of that idea of like you need to find someone that you just like being with because yeah. again, it's not going to you're not going to be existing with this person on a poster. Okay, <laughs> I mean that is not <laughs> that's not going to get you the distance. And so, right. someone that you just enjoy that you're comfortable with that you enjoy spending time with. And again, you know, I mean. Physical attraction is important, but at the same time, you can't you can't make it the the be all end all litmus test, or you're just going to be chucking through people left and yeah, right. There's got to be yeah. more. Never just, find just someone. physical. There's got to be more. Yeah, and mm-hmm. if I could just add one one other story, I think when when I realized that Julie and I were moving towards something serious, I was actually at a ball game covering it for a news event. I was a reporter at the time, and was at the ballpark, and I just kind of stopped and realized something's missing. And it was like, no, someone's missing. And that's when I realized that that's kind of when the love connected. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is someone who's part of my life and they're not here. Um, And that was that moment I think I knew if you want that magic moment. But it was just realizing, oh, there's a part of my life missing. And I really enjoy when this person fills that role. That that means a lot to me. Yeah, because I think you kind of give yourself some room to be together. Yeah. You know, as a couple. And then also you need that time to be Mm -hmm. away from the other person. Right. As well, kind of doing your own thing. And you realize, you know what? Maybe this would be more fun. Yeah. You know, like you said with Julie, maybe this would be more fun. No, what what Bill said was, uh, you know, what's missing from this picture is a girl (laughs) in jeans and a t shirt at this ballpark. (laughs) And like, Why am I here in a tie? I don't know. I might have suspenders. So, suspenders. Yeah. So, well, these are great. Somebody help me. Yeah. These are great thoughts, you guys. And thanks so much for sharing from your own stories and hopefully giving some encouragement to folks who aren't quite there yet, haven't found that person. But um, you guys give give people a shot. Look around. See who's around you. Again, you know, don't white knuckle it with someone that you're just like repulsed by. But at the same time, um, be open to you know open your eyes and see who's around you because you'll you might be surprised don't be afraid to say hi (laughs) exactly thanks guys
Well, folks, we're here for this week's culture segment, which actually is going to bleed over into next week. So you're going to want to bookmark uh, what we say today and refer to it again next week as we continue the conversation. But we are going to be talking about uh, the topic of sadly, when a Christian leader falls. And many of you have already read our article by Sam Crabtree. We appreciate you, Sam, for writing that, uh, titled When a Spiritual Leader Falls, published on Boundless.org, largely because we heard from so many of you insane hey, what is going on among our leadership, whether the local church pastor, whether large-scale international ministry leaders? I know it has left a lot of us reeling and feeling like, um, is there any like leadership out there that we can trust? What does this look like? How do we even process all of this? And so we decided to bring in three of the best, um, three guys who we know and love here at The Boundless Show. Um, they are pastors, they are leaders, and uh, kind of coming from different perspectives. And so I want to uh, introduce them briefly. We have got Evan Riedahl. Evan's been on the show before. Hey, Evan. Hello. Woo woo. Um, so you are, so this is a weird way of introducing people. So you have, um, you're like a, you have a degree in biblical counseling, I know, pastoral counseling. Um, but you pastor what's called New Life Downtown. You're one of the pastors there, which is, I want to loosely call this because I want everyone to have like in their head what kind of um, folks we're addressing here. A church with a liturgical vibe, a lot of young adults there. And yes. anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, that's very accurate. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> we'll it, see how everyone... One of the ways that agree. we say it is it's rooted in history with room for mystery. So there's a very active, present recognition of the spirit at work and okay. uh, historical liturgical connection with the form of our worship. Okay. I appreciate the explanation because that sounded very sketchy when you started that. Okay, that's good. <laughs> then we have Pastor Brady Boyd, who is... This is, again, it all sounds so disparaging. <laughs> Mega churchish, New Life Church here in Colorado Springs, big, uh, big congregation, leaning charismatic, right? Yeah. Okay, background, yeah. you've published books. You've been pastor there for how long? Almost 14 years, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'm a middle-aged white guy leading a mega church, so okay. I'm the <laughs> embodiment of all evil. Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> excellent. We'll be sure to address that during this conversation. And then also a guy who's been on the show before, Mark Bates, uh, who was my pastor for 13 years at Village 7 Presbyterian Church here in Colorado Springs until I single-handedly drove him out of church ministry and into what is now um, the denominational sending organization, both both cross-culturally and uh, cross-continent and country, uh, MTW, Mission to the World. So, Mark, welcome. Well, great, great to be here, Lisa, and I'm glad we can still be in the same room after you ran me off. So well, thanks. It's, <laughs> it's, this is just a test, okay? We'll see how you do. So, um, But anyway, as you can see here, folks, we've got a breadth and a depth of experience, uh, not only in being pastors, but in navigating the world of Christian leadership and all that. And so we're going to jump uh, right into this conversation and, uh, you know, just kind of make you guys work um, (laughs) in answering all these questions. So the first uh, thing I want to say, so clearly in this conversation, whether this is now an elephant in the room or maybe the elephant has now gotten out, whatever, Mm. if any of us are on social media, on Twitter, watching the news, following Christian leadership blogs, whatever, we know that there are folks who have had moral failures in Christian leadership 
We know there are folks that have just up and chosen to leave the faith and decide that it's no longer for them. All different levels. And I mean, we've talked here at Boundless about Joshua Harris. Uh, We know what's going on with Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church. Carl Lentz with Hillsong. Ravi Zacharias, obviously, with RZIM Ministries. Many of you, and myself included, have listen to these guys preach, to teach, to do apologetics. And we have heard hard news um, when we find out that um, that these guys have either had a gross moral failure or have walked away from the faith or whatever. So the first question I want to, um, you know, it's, it's weird as I was thinking through this because I'm like, our average, our audience person is going to be like, what is up? Because you know, they're going to say, this would happen to me, but this doesn't happen to pastors. Mm. This doesn't happen to guys who've gone to seminary. This doesn't talk, this doesn't happen to guys who were like so close to the Lord, you know? So I want to just throw it out there and ask you guys the question. The first thing to grapple with, and it may sound dumb, is how does this happen? And you can address that on whatever level you want, uh, what that looks like, how how does this happen for the young adult who's wrestling with this? Like, is this even for real? Uh, talk to us about that. Well, it does happen because, uh, unfortunately, the church has always been led by human beings who are sinners saved by grace, and they're flawed, uh, unfortunately, that, and it comes out from time to time. Uh, it is hard when we hear the news, but it should not, uh, it should not surprise us that human beings who have an inherent sinful nature fall back into sin. And that is, it's, it's, it's discouraging to me uh, how many of these pastors had an opportunity to get it right, and it, but still got it wrong. When I hear these stories, oftentimes, and some of the names you just mentioned, I'm very familiar with. I know these people, and I know uh, some of the story behind the story. And uh, most of the, the leaders that you hear about falling had many opportunities to repent and to correct course and to get things right. Uh, In other words, they were extended a tremendous amount of grace before their failures became public. And uh, I, I, first of all, I want to say to anyone who has been personally affected by this that I'm so sorry Mm -hmm. it happened to Mm -hmm. you. Because people do put their trust in church leaders. People put their trust in men and women of God. And when that trust is broken, it's especially painful. And we all know that trust is the currency of leadership. And when that trust is broken, oftentimes it's hard for a person to ever give that trust back. And I want to say I'm sorry on behalf of all those who are listening who have been harmed by this because it is a deep, deep wound uh, that is it's hard to correct. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's uh, uh, painful. It's just it's painful to watch. And, um, you know, you mentioned some of these names. Like I mean, Ravi Zacharias was a man universally respected uh just humility, like a model. Um, and to see someone like that fall like that and what happened is, is incredibly painful. Um, this might be interesting for the Presbyterians, say, not the, the charismatic, but I do think it's part of it is we don't take spiritual warfare seriously. The Bible begins in Genesis 3 with Satan out to destroy uh, the image of God in humanity. And it goes all the way to the end at Revelation chapter 12, where we have the dragon seeking to devour those who follow after the way of the Lord. And then I, one time I looked up every single reference I could find in the Bible to demons, devils, spiritual warfare, every single reference. And most other references to spiritual warfare were rather mundane types of things. It's not, it's not 
Carrie or the Exorcist of Rosemary's Baby, you know, this kind of date me, don't they? But it's more like I'm a boomer. Uh, it's more like Modern Family. It, it is greed, covetousness, sexual uh, sin, uh, bitterness, uh, unforgiveness, and we don't take spiritual warfare seriously. Hmm. I'd be curious, not knowing the backstory for everybody, but at all of those places, like Pastor Brady's saying, that, that they may have had an opportunity to receive grace, to get out, to confess, uh, whatever was going on, what the role of the pressure that they felt, what the role of uh, holding up standards, I've built something and I have to maintain it, and and control, power, sex, greed, all of those things come in, um, but then the isolation that comes with that too. Mm. I've heard so many times the statement, it's lonely at the top. Uh, I've never been the lead pastor. I've been an executive pastor in our context. Uh, and I'd just be curious how how much we self-impose that. I have to be alone because I'm leading and I'm at the top, and therefore nobody understands and nobody gets it, and they don't let anybody in, whether it's friends, spouses, counselors, spiritual directors, whomever it would be, that would be a source of trusted confidence of saying, I can confess whatever, and you have unconditional positive regard for me mm-hmm. and I can I can be me and broken and weak and humble and human in this moment mm-hmm. instead of having to maintain whatever it is they feel the pressure is that's pushing them to maintain that and then the isolation that comes from that and then the breaking point that mm-hmm. may inevitably happen because of that yeah well I want to add one layer to that and I agree with you Evan but there's there's one layer of personal cover-up, and then there's another layer of institutional cover-up. Mm-hmm. Because in many of the cases that you just mentioned, there were people inside the organization that were very aware mm. of the leader's brokenness. And instead of calling that leader into account, they instituted a series of cover-ups. And I just told a group of pastors this morning that when you feel the pressure uh, to tell something, always tell the truth. And oftentimes in these organizations that you just mentioned, they had opportunities to tell the truth, to bring it out in the open, to bring accountability and repair to people who were broken. But instead, they went to great lengths to cover up uh, the leader's faults and failures. And even in some cases, as we know now, uh, actually went to great lengths to help uh well, to help the leader continue in his lifestyle yeah. and did nothing to bring it into the light. And so not only should these individual leaders be brought to account, but the organizational boards and yep. internal leadership teams also should be held accountable for the behavior of their leader. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring that up, Brady, because I kind of want to take this personal and into your own experiences. And maybe you can lead out, Brady, with this, because you literally came to New Life Church in the wake of Mm -hmm. a very public scandal with Pastor Ted Haggard and uh, something that you know, left Colorado Springs reeling, the Christian world, um, you know, the the religious broadcasting community and all the religious leadership community, uh, Christian leadership community uh, nationwide and beyond. What was the pressure like for you knowing that, hey, um, okay, well, Brady Boyd, you just give this a try. Let's see. Uh, here's, <laughs> here's this huge church and all these people that, you know, what what reason do they have to trust you? Describe for us uh, what was that like in that season? Well, I had a very wise mentor told me that when I got here, I would find three groups of people waiting on me. The first group would be a group that would immediately trust me because I had the I had pastor in front of my name. And these were people that were going to give me the benefit of the doubt. 
The second group of people would be people that wanted to trust me, but I would have to earn it. And there would be a third group of people who were irreparably harmed mm. and would no longer mm. ever trust a leader. And I found that all three groups of people were waiting on me at New Life Church. Mm. And there was a group that immediately rallied behind me, supported me, helped me uh, regain the integrity and the trust of our church. And that was a long time to rebuild that, but it, it has happened. A second group of people waited, and they and I, the only way to build trust is to do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I knew that when I got here, I was going to have to spend years, not weeks, not months, but years saying what I meant, being honest, being forthright, telling the truth, being a person of integrity. And after years, I would regain their trust. And that has happened. Yeah. Uh, and then the third group of people, uh, they were irreparably harmed. And the only, the only thing I could do for them is to point them toward places where they could get healing. Mm-hmm. But I would probably not be the catalyst for their mm-hmm. healing. I would have to, they would have to go somewhere else to find their healing and uh, and I've watched people leave New Life Church, go away, get healing, and some of them have come back. Uh, so I found all three groups of people waiting on me, and the pressure was enormous. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was living in a glass bowl. Every word, every action, every everything that I wrote, everything that I spoke was highly scrutinized. But I knew I knew that that was part of the process to regain trust. And 14 years later. I feel like I have regained the reputation of our church, and I have built trust, and our congregation now trusts my leadership, but it took a very long time. Yeah. What, um, Mm. Evan and Mark, what examples would you say you've seen in your own ministry? Because again, we can talk about, obviously, there are the big, you know, public ones, the ones that Mm. hit the news, but really, you know, it it all comes down to uh, a person's heart, a person's mind, accountability within the church, leadership, like Brady was talking about. What would you say have been uh, some of the fallout that you've seen personally? You know, sadly, we talk about the high-profile ones, but I, I know personally, you know, the high-profile, I know personally some of the very low-profile people who've gone through this and, um, and again, seen the damage firsthand, not only to them, to their family, to the community, to the church, but frankly, to, to those of us who are their friends. And um, and so uh, you know, there does seem to be a pattern, again, where you're talking about the lack of uh, relational transparency uh, that that is there. There are people speaking into their lives. Like I've been in groups with some of these guys, and you find out they they really had were not disclosing. Mm-hmm. They were they really were keeping walled off. Uh, so that's one. And I also think you know Brady, you're talking about those little things, little acts of integrity. Uh, you know, and and you can look and see a pattern where they were they practicing those uh, that later developed into to, to bigger things. But the transparency is huge. Somebody has to know you, and uh, and if you're not known. And then along with that, again, what Brady was saying, if they know you, they need to call you out when it's out of line, and boards have been unwilling to do that. Um, now, in some cases, so, for example, you mentioned Ted Haggard. You know, I was living in Orlando, I think, when that first came about, and when I first heard the report, I did not believe it. Uh, I said, they're making this up. They're out to get them. And I don't think that was the wrong response. I think that was the right response to believe the best. But then the evidence became overwhelming, and their church handled it beautifully, I think. Uh, but um, but it, but but that you have to be known. You have to let people in. Yeah. I think, uh, to your point, it's very telling, or it's it's helpful to realize that 
we too often mistakenly say, oh, this is some like apocalyptic thing. It's a one-time thing. It's just Mm. like, oh my goodness, I was walking down the street and there was a prostitute. Well, rarely is that the case. It's usually a chipping away of stuff that has happened over months, over years. And again, you know, how do you go after it from the get-go and and at the start? But Yeah. And one of the things we have around new life is that trust is gained in drops, but lost in buckets. And something big happens and you've just lost all that work that you've done, the years of faithful little actions that have gained people's trust in you as a leader. For me, seeing leaders at New Life do what they say that they're going to do in an accountability way from a both a public place, but then seeing them in private and know that they're holding up that level of accountability as well. So for some of our leaders, it's if they're going to go on a trip in some way and minister somewhere else, they're taking somebody of the same gender with them to make sure that their time is held accountable mm-hmm. or even a standard of pastors don't handle money. And so every now and then it happens where somebody forgot to put their tithe or offering in the bucket when it was getting passed and they come up to me and I'm like a deer in the headlights in the lobby <laughs> going, I can't take that from you mm-hmm. because of this process that we have to make sure that we're above board on everything. And, or third party, like the, the, the Crabtree article was talking about third party auditors of saying we're outside auditors coming in and looking and that we're open, not just with a few, but on the public level, but on the private level, we're reinforcing it, that we're held accountable and we're living up to that accountability as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what would you guys say? I mean, that's a good start to to that angle of the conversation is what are some of the things that uh, people within churches should expect from their church leadership as far as levels of accountability, uh, different things that are in place? I mean, I think I would assume that myself and my friends, we always assume the best. We're just like, of course, everyone's doing something appropriate. And it's just, you know, whatever, until something hits the news. And then we're like, nope. So um, what what should someone going into a church expect on that level? Well, I think that every pastor needs multiple layers of accountability. So just to have one or two people around you is not enough because our lives are very complex. And I live my life in different arenas different places. So it's just not in the pulpit of the church or the living room of my house. I have multiple places where I live my life. Therefore, I need multiple layers of accountability. I need friends. My my wife of 31 and a half years is my primary uh, person of accountability. So we need strong marriages to begin with. Uh, But we also need different kinds of friends. Uh, I have elders. I have overseers. I have close personal friends. I just have multiple layers of people around me that know me. And I think, Pastor Mark, you made a good point that people that know you, Mm -hmm. you know, so many of the leaders you mentioned had a lot of people around them, but they were nobody that was close to them. Mm -hmm. And they've all confessed that a lot of the leaders Mm -hmm. that I've talked to who've had moral failures had the facade of accountability. There was, it looked like they were surrounded by Mm -hmm. good people, but quite honestly, they lived a very private life, a very secluded mm. private life where they could hide. Mm-hmm. And taking away those dark corners is what I call them, shining a light on every dark corner of your life and making sure that there is there's just not any prolonged isolation in any area of your life. Because I think the devil does his best work in isolation mm-hmm. and darkness. Mm-hmm. And when we live a, a life that's out in accountability, out in the light, uh, the chances of us being deceived and the chances of us having significant moral failures is pretty limited. Also, I think churches need to put in place where people can say something. Um, oftentimes, with a, somebody sees something kind of inappropriate with a minister or a leader, 
uh, somebody might see it and they might call someone and go, hmm, but they don't know what to do with that. And Matthew uh, 18 has been misused in the sense that people say, I have to go and confront them directly. Well, that's not appropriate in a supervisory role. You need to be able to go to someone and say, you know, uh, I saw Mark, uh, this woman, it just didn't quite look right. Or And there needs to be a system for that. And so, like Village 7, we made sure our staff said, you could, you do not have to confront me directly. I'm your boss, right? That's going to be too awkward. You can go to any leader, any elder, if you see anything that's inappropriate, sex, money, attitude, even, you know, whatever else. And you don't have to worry about that because it needs to be a safe way for people to see things. We found this with our child protection policy. It's the same idea. You, you, you might not see someone do something inappropriate with their children, but if several people are seeing something that's like, cause you go, hmm, uh, you might have a problem. And so do the same thing with, um, with, uh, with leaders. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And it is, you know, I, that happened uh, to me here years ago at Focus on the Family. And I went and talked to someone and I said, I remember saying, I'm not saying this is anything. I'm just saying that this is, it looks weird. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, I mean, this is my background in PR of just thinking to myself, like, if we're going to, you know, do, if, if I'm responsible for doing PR, I'm just saying, you know, let's, let's ask some questions here and let's just find right. out how to do this differently. Well, it turned out to be something. And, mm. um, you know, sure enough, we had to, we had to chase after it and stuff, but it is one of those things where you, you want to have the freedom to be able to say, you know, I'm not like pointing fingers or making accusations or saying, you know, the one thing we need to do is fire this person, but be okay with asking the right questions and finding someone you can trust. Yeah, open and honest conversation is your friend. There is, a, and when that is cultured, when it's when it's encouraged, and it has to start at the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you you can't expect everyone else to have open and honest conversations if you're not willing to have open mm-hmm. and honest conversations. And so you have to encourage it. You have to model it. You have to expect it. You have to applaud it when it does happen. And when when it when that kind of organization has that kind of honesty where everything is lived out in the open, where real relationships are happening, uh, that's the organizations that tend to be healthy and that tend to thrive. Okay, awesome. Well, you guys, um, thank you so much. I mean, this was great. The time goes by so fast. Oh, my goodness. I have got to ask you guys, are you willing to return next week to continue the conversation where, no joke, we're going to start getting down and dirty into, like, what does this look like in everyday life in wrestling with the questions you have, with understanding what you should expect from your church, with what do we do then with public uh, leaders and identifying as Christians and having to explain, like, oh, yeah, I'm the same faith as that guy. Whatever. Um, <laughs> are you guys willing to return? Let's do it. Yeah. yeah thank okay. You. Awesome. This love is, this love is, this love is Jesus. This love is, this love is, this love is Jesus in me.
Well, folks, we are finishing out the show by opening up our inbox. And this week's question, I'm going to take a stab at and answer. So listener who wrote it, thank you for uh, putting this to paper and sending it in. So here's the question. Recently, my girlfriends and I were remembering our time in college. When we talked, we felt a sense of regret and loss because of missed opportunities over things like dating, ministry, and losing contact with certain people. On an emotional level, how can you deal with the regret, especially when feeling like you could have enjoyed good relationships if you'd only been more bold? All right. Well, this is a great question. Thanks again for writing it. Um, I know I often think of how differently I'd do college if I could go back um, knowing what I do now. I mean, girl, I think that about the entire decade of my 20s, quite frankly. (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of things I wish I would have done differently. Um, But my 20s are gone and your college years are gone. That is just reality. And, you know, Uh, Some measure of regret in this is going to be normal. So what I would recommend, though, in light of this is for you to write down the losses, name them and grieve them. That is okay to realize like this, you know, my college experience is gone. There are things that I wish I would have done. There's nothing wrong with that. Write down those losses and, and feel like you can spend a little bit of time sitting on them and even grieving them. Okay, you might even want to think through why you made the decisions you made at that time and why you didn't take opportunities that you now think you should have. That's all okay. That's wisdom. And that's just learning from the past. That is fine. But this doesn't mean that every one of your college experiences was a squandered opportunity or a wrong decision. So I want you to create another list. And this list is going to be great experiences that you had during college, the friendships that you forged, maybe the maturity that you gained, and even the skills that you learned. That's another list you should have in tandem. Put the list side by side and compare them. And then take your losses list and ask yourself, Are these things forever lost to me or just in that season? You're probably going to realize that many of those things are still available to run after today. Uh, Friendships, things like dating, ministry opportunities. And now you probably have some of the boldness that you lacked back then. So like, for example, reconnect with your college friends. You have years ahead of you to reform those relationships and create new memories. Serve somewhere that you love with the gifts that you have. Meet new people. Be a more mature and savvy dater, um, you know, than the awkward weirdo you probably were in college. I mean, you probably have an advantage on that front. Okay, so embrace it. Be okay with it. (laughs) Um, I like the quote uh, from author Catherine Mansfield. She says, make it a rule of life never to regret and never to look back. Regret is an appalling waste of energy. You can't build on it. It's only good for wallowing in. And I think that's so true. I mean, there's nothing wrong with learning from the past and realizing that there were losses that we had there. But what you can do is move forward. And really, that's all you can do is look at the days you have ahead of you. And what are you going to do in them? What are you going to do differently? Uh, Just as we close out here, a couple verses that I think are super helpful and encouraging in this. Uh, The first one is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that hope is in there a couple times, and there's always hope as long as you have a future to live. And so trust your future uh, to God himself, 
and see what he does with it. And then finally, Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. What that verse is saying is, look, you're just getting started. Uh, For the believer, we don't move down into night. We move only into day because we have eternity ahead of us. And so be hopeful in that and realize you have a lot of great things in front of you and you can start living them even today. All right, folks. Well, I hope that that will encourage this listener and anyone else who's listening. And of course, we want you to write in to us at editor at boundless.org with any questions you have for the future. And meanwhile, I kind of once in a while like to say this as well. Hop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review of the show if you'd be willing to, um, so that other folks can find the show and learn from you as to why you think it is helpful. That's always great for us too. So in the meantime, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Ann Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. You've read accounts in the Bible of how Christ impacted so many people, but we really know very little about the lives of those early followers of Jesus. The Chosen, I Have Called You By Name, imagines what life was like for those who followed Christ. Based on the widely acclaimed TV series The Chosen, this Focus on the Family book by best-selling author Jerry Jenkins brings color and depth to the people surrounding Christ. You can find out more at focusonthefamily.com slash chosen.